Welcome back. You are listening to Christ and Cthulhu. I'm your host, C.L. Fuquay. Today we continue with part three of Call of Cthulhu, The Madness from the Sea. Last time we left off with part two, the tale of Inspector Legrasse. I think it best if we do a quick recap, so let's get started. The journey of Francis Wayland Thurston into his great uncle Professor Angel's documents concerning Cthulhu and the Cthulhu cult seemed to reach the absolute limits of what he could rationally deny as he followed the events concerning Inspector Legrasse. Inspector Legrasse had approached his great uncle among other academics 15 years prior with a statue of Cthulhu he had, he had obtained in a raid of a, on a devilish cult in the backwoods of Louisiana. That statue would prove too similar with another cult on the other side of the world and too similar to the one sculpted by the young sculptor Anthony Wilcox. After confronting Wilcox in person, Francis comes to believe Wilcox genuinely was not lying and dreamt of the statue among other strange things. Yet Francis chalks this up to subconscious recognition from a time past and doesn't believe there's anything supernatural going on, just a series of extraordinary coincidences. And that is where we pick up with part three. Francis is visiting a friend of his who is the curator of a museum and mineralogist. He has all but given up the quest of this strange cult and statue. There really are no more avenues to explore after all he's seen and done. That is, when he comes across a news clipping while observing his friend's mineral specimens he had on display. The news clipping came from the Sydney Bulletin in Australia with the headline as follows. Mystery derelict found at sea. Vigilant arrives with helpless armed New Zealand yacht in tow. One survivor and dead man found aboard. Tale of desperate battle and deaths at sea. Rescued seaman refuses particulars of strange experience. Odd idol found in his possession. Inquiry to follow. The lone survivor was the second mate, who went by the name of Gustav Johansson. The odd idol he was clutching was the same statue as the one Inspector Lagrasse had seized in the raid in Louisiana. When Francis sees this, he immediately starts reading it with great eagerness. The story that is printed is quite extraordinary. The crew of the New Zealanders that Gustav Johansson was part of were on a ship called the Emma, which was blown way off course by a raging storm. This led them to confront the Alert, which was manned by a, quote, queer and evil-looking crew, end quote. When the evil-looking ones ordered the Emma to turn around, they refused. The Alert immediately opens fire on them with an unusually large amount of firepower for a schooner. This damages the Emma, but not before they manage to bring their ship close enough for the crew of the Emma to board the Alert and fight all their crew to the death. They kill every last one of them, owing this complete victory to the savage crew's, quote, particularly abhorrent and desperate though rather clumsy mode of fighting, end quote. It does not come without its cost, however, as three of the Emma's men are killed, including its captain and first mate. This leaves Gustav in charge, and they decide to take the ship further on its course to see what the crew of the Alert was hiding and why it was worth all this bloodshed. What Gustav managed to tell them is they came across a small island in a part of the ocean where there wasn't supposed to be one. His official statement then becomes quite vague, and he merely states that Six men died by falling into a rock chasm on the island, and he can't remember when the other one he was found with died. They can't even quite determine how he died, but the investigation did turn up extremely important corollary information about the crew of the Alert. The traders along the waterfront were familiar with that crew, and said they were known to have secret meetings and night trips in the woods, 
After the same earthquake that put Wilcox in the delirious dream state, this crew had made haste in their ship to this island. Francis starts to put all the dates, events, people, and seemingly disparate pieces together and a malign picture begins to form. One that breaks his rationalist position. This takes him on a whirlwind tour across the country and globe. Interviewing people from Dunedin, where the whole sea drama took place, he hears that the crew of the Alert did things similar to what he heard of the Louisiana cult. Then in Auckland, he learns that Gustav moved back to his home in Oslo, with his blonde hair turned white, from the events at sea. Importantly, they had his new address to give him. Lastly, he goes to Sydney to speak to the Vice Admiralty Court that led the investigation, but learns nothing new and that the Alert was rebuilt and in commercial use. He goes by the museum where the stone statue was residing and studies it intensely to find it is very much the same as the Louisiana Idol in Wilcox's sculpture. On top of that, the curator of the museum tells Francis that geologists had been puzzled by the figure because it was made out of a rock that did not come from Earth. He is then reminded of what old Castro said to Inspector Lagrasse, quote, they had come from the stars and had brought their images with them, end quote. This had wrapped up everything except one last trip. He had to visit Gustav Johansson in Oslo. When he goes to his home, he finds his old wife, who sadly informs him that Gustav had passed some time before, under eerily similar circumstances as his great uncle, Professor Angel. He hadn't told her anything different than what he had said for the official report, but had left a handwritten manuscript of, quote, technical matters, end quote, written in English, which his wife couldn't understand. Francis convinces the widow that his investigation has connections to that manuscript, and she hands it over to him. He begins reading it on the London boat, and this is where the climax begins, my friends. He begins his letter. I cannot attempt to transcribe it verbatim in all its cloudiness and redundance, but I will tell it just enough to show why the sound of the water against the vessel's sides became so unendurable to me that I stopped my ears with cotton. Gustav writes of the crew of the alert and describes their abominable quality. He remarks that his crew felt it was their duty to destroy them because they were so depraved. So much so that when he and his crew's actions were criticized later by the court of inquiry as ruthless, he was confused as he felt killing them was the only just thing to do. As they continued the alert's predetermined course, they discovered a huge stone pillar sticking out of the ocean and approaching closer. There's a coastline of, quote, mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, end quote. Cyclopean is a term Lovecraft uses a lot, and it basically means structures that look like they couldn't have been built by man, hence Cyclops. Francis remarks that this must have been the tip of the dead Rulier, which held Great Cthulhu, and all his minions deep inside. The ascension of the city to the surface allowed Great Cthulhu to reach out in his dreams and visions of the psychically prone and his nefarious followers, signaling them to come release him. Gustav, of course, couldn't have known this, and even after the fact, didn't understand the larger picture as Francis does now. Although poor Gustav, as we will see, gets much more up close and personal. Francis then remarks that he figures only the very top portion of the Cthulhu Citadel must have been visible. He says when he thinks of how much more must be down there, he almost wants to kill himself immediately. Lovecraft has a way of being very intense in his writings in punctuated moments like that, which give it a weightiness. I also can't help but feel this is Lovecraft just speaking of his own feelings about the ocean. 
He hated the ocean, if you hadn't caught on yet. Back to the story. He then goes on to describe the architecture in more detail, noting that Gustav describes vast angles and surfaces too great to belong to Earth, filled with horrible images and hieroglyphs. The description of Gustav matches the dream descriptions of Wilcox in regards to the geometry. He calls it non-Euclidean and dimensions apart from ours. Gustav speaks of angles looking one way, and when you look back, they've shifted into another angle. It's very bizarre and sounds like it'd give the average person vertigo just being there. They managed to land on a mud bank, having to climb monstrous, slippery stone steps, obviously not designed by or for humans. None of the crew wants to be there and just looks around for a souvenir of some kind to take back with them, but in vain. Suddenly, one of the men, Rodriguez the Portuguese, shouts that he found something. They all made their way to him to find what appeared to be a gargantuan door, with the symbol of what we now know as Cthulhu etched into it. They can't believe the size of it and, for some reason, start messing with it. It's obviously too big for the few men to open conventionally, but they are pressing size and when one of them gets to the top and is touching the panel, it begins to slowly give way, seemingly on its own, and as they all back up, they watch the process unfold before them. The blackness revealed when it opens up is so thick it's almost material. It's described as actually bursting forth into the air along with a foul and intolerable stench. That is when one of the men says he hears a sound coming from deep within the darkness. A quote, nasty slopping sound, end quote. What follows is the introduction of a cultural icon. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poisoned city of madness. Poor Johansson's handwriting almost gave out when he wrote of this. Of the six men who never reached the ship, he thinks two perished of pure fright in that accursed instant. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy. Such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. A mountain walked or stumbled. The next little line has always been a favorite of mine. Quote, the stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vigintillions of years, great Cthulhu was loose again, and ravening for delight. Cthulhu immediately grabs three of the sailors and hurls them out to their deaths. One man trying to escape falls or is swallowed up by an angle of masonry, behaving in a way which defies the natural laws. Gustav and another shipmate, Bryden, manage to get back to the alert and get it running while Cthulhu flounders on the shore hesitating. Once they get going, though, Cthulhu slides into the water and begins the chase. It says that Bryden looked back and went mad, laughing shrilly as he kept on laughing until he laughed himself to death. Once in my life I have been so scared, I laughed like a maniac, but we'll get to that later. What happens next is definitely unexpected. Gustav realizes that he's not going to outrun the flabby, monstrous creature coming after him, so he summons up what's left of his resolve and yanks the wheel to pull a full 180 and determines to charge into Cthulhu. Cthulhu's head rises up just as the alert crashes into it, and even as all the tentacles from his mouth wrap around the ship, he keeps pushing forward until there's a great gelatinous explosion like jelly and gas with a stench like that of a thousand open graves. He pops Cthulhu. 
As he is sailing away in great haste, he sees the scattered, flabby pieces beginning to reform themselves slowly. But that ends the account. Francis goes on to read that Gustav just eats enough to keep himself alive, while clutching the statue until he is rescued. He knows he can't disclose the full story, and he doesn't want his wife knowing either, but resolves to write out the events as best he can before he dies, which is what led to the English notes that Francis Thurston found himself enraptured by. Francis places the document in the tin box beside the bas-relief and papers from his great-uncle, Professor Angel. He says another line that is one of my favorites from Lovecraft, quote, I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me, end quote. Seeing that the world is not coming to an immediate and horrible end, he guesses that Cthulhu must have sunk him back to the depths of the sea with his city, waiting again until the time is right for his revival. The end was only delayed, but can never be thwarted. He muses that a similar fate as Professor Angel and Gustav is probably waiting to find him as well. And since this story starts as the account of the late Francis Wayland Thurston, we can only assume his prediction came true and the cult found him. And that's it. We made it through all three sections of H.P. Lovecraft's famous Call of Cthulhu. The impact this story has had on pop culture, music, games, movies, and other, other writers is, like the great priest of the Outer Gods himself, ultimately unknowable. While it's not my favorite of Lovecraft's works, or my favorite of Lovecraft's Pantheon of Gods, it is definitely one of his best, and was my pivotal introduction to his work. Real quick to get back to the hysterical laughing. I'm not sure if any of you have found yourself in that kind of situation. I mean the near-death kind, not the giant sea monster kind. But when faced with imminent demise that gives you time to languish in the realization your death is certain, you don't have many responses other than going catatonic, soiling yourself, or laughing. On the night Dora and I were riding our motorcycles through Redwood National Forest to get to the nearest city, it began raining, which, combined with the heavy fog, total darkness of the tall trees, bright headlights of passing vehicles on the other side of this narrow two-lane road, roads which were descending and curving under construction with warning signs for deer and other large animals, it finally broke me. After miles and miles of this, I just began laughing, cackling like a madman, all the way till we were out of the forest and it looked like we would live. So when I first read that section about Bryden going mad with laughter at the sight of Cthulhu chasing them, I felt that. I felt that, Bryden. Well, I hope this encourages you to read the story for yourself. It's not terribly long, and it's packed full of the kind of cosmic horror that Lovecraft made his signature. I will say that for a modern-day reader, and especially non-reader, trying to get into Lovecraft can be daunting because of his antiquated writing style. I love it personally. But sometimes it does take a few rereads to comprehend what he's saying. But in this story, we have the actual appearance and revelation of the titular character, which doesn't happen often in Lovecraft stories. We usually get hints or half glimpses, which is probably one of the reasons Cthulhu has become so popular. Often in more serious depictions of the creature, you will see a very large, titanic figure with a hulking musculature. Take the Kristen Stewart film Underwater, for example. But reading the story, this isn't the description given. I mean, I surely enjoy that hulking interpretation of him because it is intimidating, but in Lovecraft's vision, he is flabby, slimy, and greasily slides into the water, it says. 
It's a much more creepy, disturbing vision, as opposed to the conventional Kraken-like interpretation. Although maybe he's only flabby after being dead dreaming for so long. Who knows? Once out, he immediately starts wreaking havoc on everyone within reach, which goes to show the intentions he has for the rest of the world. I think it also illuminates his feelings towards his faithful followers, as they probably could have expected the same treatment from him had they been the ones to open the door. The real exposition of Lovecraft's cosmicism comes from Section 2 in Old Castro's dialogue. In Section 3, we see Cthulhu himself in all his horrible glory doing what he does best. Lovecraft's strongest strategy is not in the thing itself, wonderful as it is many times, but in the normal everyday reality's reaction to it. It reminds me of that section in the novel The Exorcist when Father Marin is telling Father Karras that he believes the target of the demonic is not the possessed, but those who witness what it does to the possessed person. This is the same essentially to what we see in this story and others of Lovecraft. All who encounter Cthulhu, save for one, almost immediately die of pure terror or the violence of the great old one himself. Gustav says part of him died during the horrifying episode and death would ultimately be a relief to him. All the cosmic beings of Lovecraft's mythos have to do is show up in our world our conceptions of reality shatter in a violent and blasphemous cataclysm. Here we see yet another inversion of Orthodox Christian teleology. St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans that all the sufferings the Christians were currently enduring under the Roman oppression couldn't compare to the glory to come and the revealing of Christ at the end. The entire creation with humanity as the sons of God is remade and renewed. Another account from much more recent times comes from St. Paisios, who reposed in the 90s. One day, an elder at that time, he was troubled over a matter of dispute among the brethren in the monastery, and interceded to St. Euphemia for guidance. She herself had been martyred by Rome in the early 4th century. One night she appeared to St. Paisios, and they spoke for an indeterminate amount of time. St. Paisios said he couldn't tell how long because he lost all sense of time in her presence. This is an extraordinary detail, showing the eternal aspect to those who have passed into life in Christ, and how their eternality bleeds into our temporal reality. After she resolves the issue for him, through her God-given wisdom, he asked her how she was able to endure her torturous martyrdom. She replies, quote, Father, if I knew back then how eternal life would be, and the heavenly beauty the souls enjoy by being next to God, I honestly would have asked for my martyrdom to last forever as it was absolutely nothing compared to the gifts of the grace of God." End quote. Cthulhu holds incomprehensible, unnameable terror for humanity. Christ holds incomprehensible, eternal beauty for humanity. When we look upon Cthulhu, we lose all vestiges of our humanity. When we look upon Christ, we gain our true humanity. Again, I must stress that Lovecraft was not setting out to write some anti-Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. He set out to make a truly and wholly unique universe based on the atheistic nihilism he embraced. But it, it is revealing that there are undeniable parallels or rather antithetical points, whether he meant to create them or not. Because as I said, nihilism, true cosmic nihilism, is the counterpoint to true orthodoxy. These are the two places we as humans are heading. Next week, instead of jumping into a new multi-part Lovecraft story, I will be doing a reading of his short work, The Cats of Ulthar. It takes place in what is known as the Dreamlands. The Dreamlands are a realm which have a completely separate geography from Earth, 
and is populated with fantastical beings and monsters. As the name suggests, the Dreamlands are only accessible through dreams. There is a slew of stories by Lovecraft that take place in the Dreamlands, which you can usually find under the Dreamland Cycle category of his work. The Cats of Ulthar isn't particularly scary or anything, more macabre or cautionary. But I want listeners to hear it because the next standalone episode I will do features a recurring character. So I hope you stick around next week to listen. If you've enjoyed the content of this podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing with friends to increase listenership. The music for this episode was provided by composer Graham Plowman. You can find his music at iTunes or GrahamPlowman.com. Also, we have Cryochamber, which you can find by searching Cryochamber Music on Facebook or YouTube, as well as their Bandcamp. Special shout-out for editing and production by Dora Alvarez. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Ziel Fuquay, and until next time, remember... That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. <laughs>